Hey, everyone. Today, we wanted to share some extra content about survivors' perspectives on the abuse crisis. An important part of the story is the grassroots movement of survivors that began in the U.S. in the 1980s and has since expanded around the globe. I spoke with Brian Kleitz from Case Western Reserve University, who did his doctoral dissertation on the history of this movement. I also spoke with Tim Lennon, the chairman of the board of SNAP, one of the first organizations of survivors of sexual abuse. I hope you enjoy our conversations, and we'll be back with another full-length episode next week. The following contains references to child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. So, you know, most of us nowadays think about the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report in 2018. And um, my generation, you know, I was in college when the 2002 uh, Boston scandal hit. And those are really the the two major touchstones for most American Catholics when we think about this topic. Um, But in fact, survivors have been coming forward probably since the 40s or 50s. And uh, we have documented cases in the 1960s and 70s where survivors come forward. And by the 80s, they're coming forward in such numbers that they begin to find one another. Brian Kleitz of Case Western Reserve University. We have to remember here the broader cultural context was of women uh, who had been sexually assaulted and domestically abused beginning to come forward, as well as um, gay rights and the AIDS crisis. So those are all happening in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, and implicitly, I think, more through a broader cultural discourse like we're having now with Me Too, Catholic survivors um, felt empowered to begin to take this more activist and organized stance with one another. Um, And as I said, it was really not adversarial at first. It was thinking, how can we help uh, one another to refind our faith, whether or not we're still comfortable going into Catholic churches? And how can we help get counseling and healing for survivors so they can begin to pick up the pieces of their life and, and build constructive families? Kleitz credits the beginning of the movement to two organizations that started around the same time, the late 1980s, in the same U.S. city, Chicago, and they were both started by women. So a woman named Jean Miller in Chicago, um, out in Arlington Heights by O'Hare Airport, a pretty affluent uh, parish. Her son had been abused on a, on a trip to the Priest Lake House in uh, Wisconsin. Um, and the Millers first took it up with the parish, uh, with the other, the other pastors there, and then with the Diocese of Chicago. And they kept getting thwarted in their efforts to have this abusive priest, uh, Father Mayer, removed from the ministry. Instead, he had been uh, transferred to other parishes in greater Chicago. Miller thought that the parents of the other kids who were at the lake house would want to band together. And that did not happen. In fact, many of the other parents already knew the the abuse had happened, but they had told their children to shut up, uh, to not repeat this, to not slander the good priest's reputation. And they were embarrassed and ashamed. Um, by her insistence that they should speak out publicly to the rest of the parish and the local community about this abuse. Um, So she was ostracized. She was the uh, really the only uh, parent of those uh, group of children who had been abused on that trip, not to mention the victims from other trips with this priest, who was willing to take a stance. So uh, this this totally alienated Jean from her uh, parish, with the sole exception or the, the strong exception of the director of religious education there, woman by the name of Marilyn Steffel. And the two of them really bonded and banded together and um, through their local outreach began to meet other survivors. Miller began appearing on television 
And that's how other survivors and their families found her. Daytime talk shows like Geraldo, Oprah, and the Phil Donahue show played a big role in the early days of the movement. Jean was invited onto various uh, television broadcasts like the Larry King Live show. And she started just sharing her personal home phone number. Uh, not thinking much would come of it. They knew other survivors were out there. They really did not think there were many other survivors. And they were shocked. Um, her phone started ringing off the hook. Uh, she was beloved, um, Jean Miller, for picking up all, all hours of the night, um, anytime to, to speak with survivors. And eventually it became her full-time job. Uh, she founded this organization called uh, Vocal, Victims of Clergy Abuse Linkup. And they later just became known simply by Linkup. Around the same time period, Barbara Blaine, a lawyer and survivor of sexual abuse, started SNAP, which stands for Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. And Barbara had a background in the Pax Christi movement. Um, she was a Catholic worker at the time. Um, and she really just started doing outreach from her Catholic worker home uh, on the south side of Chicago. And uh, when, when LinkUp started, uh, Barbara was a member there, but she had a different approach. And, you know, shortly thereafter incorporated her own organization. So by 1990, as far as I can tell, the only two organizations, formal organizations for clergy sexual abuse victims in the world were both in Chicago. The two survivor groups grew up side by side in the 80s and 90s. Barbara Blaine's organization, SNAP, was really focused on a self-help model. So SNAP um, used the meetings kind of along the lines of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, in order for survivors to come out, to tell one another. And then it was really part of Barbara's agenda, Barbara Blaine's agenda, to get survivors to speak publicly to the media, which was very different between these organizations. So LinkUp was focused more, if I can generalize, on survivors' interior healing and on local communities. And Barbara Blaine's SNAP was much more about being publicly in the media, um, getting stories out there on the newspapers, doing national media appearances, and forming many other clusters of survivors throughout the country and then later throughout the globe. So they had very different strategies. They took on very different personas. And yet, at least through the 1990s and early 2000s, almost um, 100% of their members belonged, I think, to both organizations. Um, so I think it's, it's not a competitive atmosphere, but each has their own charism, if you will, and um, their own identity. In 1994, the LinkUp founders handed the reins of leadership over to an independent Catholic priest named Tom Economist, who was a survivor of clerical abuse. Economist led the organization until he died from cancer in 2001. And so when the spotlight story uh, by the Boston Globe breaks in early 2002 and throughout the middle of 2002, the LinkUp is without a leader. Meanwhile, SNAP continued to be a prominent voice in the media, as well as a resource for the growing number of abuse victims who came forward in response to the scandals of 2002. It was really a, an odd transition where it's still these two organizations in Chicago, but after Tom Economist's death, LinkUp kind of fades and will become totally dissolved by 2007. And SNAP um, sees this new ascendancy um, and became the major uh, organization globally for clergy victims. Kleitz told me that for many survivors, Spotlight was both a triumphant and troubling experience. So Spotlight is bittersweet for survivors in Boston, but also throughout the country. For those who did come, uh, come forward early and publicly, like Gilbert Galthy's victims, like all the victims in Chicago that had come forward in the 1990s, Spotlight was traumatic in some ways. They felt 
um, they felt recognized and seen on a national level like they had never before. But it also reopened these wounds that for some of them, they thought they had they had kind of closed off. Um, they'd, they'd created careers for themselves. Um, they'd stopped identifying as survivors, uh, primarily in their workplaces or in their parishes. And Spotlight kind of tears that Band-Aid off. It was painful for survivors who had already come forward. And we now have this, this phrase um, that young people use a lot about being triggered. You know, when somebody, a victim of a trauma, reads something similar to their own trauma, they begin to have flashbacks and a very painful and sometimes violently painful recollection of things they maybe haven't processed, haven't spoken to loved ones about yet. And this happens to survivors who hadn't come forward yet. So Spotlight really um, was, was doubly painful or a double-edged sword in that sense, but also you know, it was a moment of triumph and recognition for survivors in this country and across the world. It really, it really garnered uh, international attention for the first time. My name is uh, Tim Lennon. I'm the president of the Board of Directors of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, and I live in Tucson, Arizona. Tim Lennon is a survivor of clergy sex abuse. He's been on the board of SNAP for almost 10 years and has served as its president since 2018. I'm also the local leader of uh, the SNAP support group here in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, I'm very active uh, in advocating for survivors, supporting survivors, and it's very rewarding work. It's my way of fighting back. When I was 12 years old, I was raped and abused by my parish priest. Um, memories were buried for decades. Uh, around 1995, when I lived in San Francisco, there was uh, several people um, handing out leaflets in front of the cathedral, talking about sexual abuse by clergy. And that evoked memories of my abuse. Um, I began to get involved with the local support group and was involved in that group and uh, for about three years, from 95 to 98. And I progressed uh, along with therapy and support from my friends and family. Eventually, Lennon stopped going to therapy. He started a family. And at 51 years old, he became a father to twin girls. In 2010, uh, when my daughters turned 12, uh, that evoked memories of a violent, life-threatening rape um, that I suffered. And uh, this caused me to go through uh, dramatic emotional troubles, I call them the troubles, PTSD, uh, depression, sadness, I was crying for months. I got reinvolved with SNAP, engaged with therapy, and began um, to work essentially full-time with SNAP because I retired soon after and for the last 10 years have been uh, pretty much as a volunteer uh, full-time with SNAP. Most of what SNAP does, according to its first executive director, David Clossy, is not public. He told a reporter in 2011, quote, what we do and what people think we do is radically, radically different. 
We spend 90% of our time out of the public spotlight, not talking at all, but listening. The mission of SNAP is to support survivors of sexual abuse. And we do this primarily through a one-on-one um, interaction on the phone, through email. We have local support groups in 30 or 40 localities, and we have seven or eight national um, support groups dealing like abused by nuns, abused as adults, families of those abused. So survivor support is, is the primary work that we do. We also hold uh, predators and institutions uh, accountable to protect the community. And we also want to be participating in raising awareness uh, within society. Now we're about a network of 30,000 with 160 or so uh, volunteer local leaders and in five or six countries. There are SNAP abuse support networks around the world, and they are open to any abuse survivor, not just those abused by priests. Originally, SNAP started uh, entirely within the Catholic community. That was entirely true uh, up until five, ten years ago. As other instances of institutional abuse came forward, whether the Boy Scouts or uh, Bill Cosby or Weinstein, the gymnasts, SNAP has always intervened, um, Sandusky, um, has always intervened as supporting survivors and supporting uh, holding people accountable and raising community awareness about sexual abuse. Over the years, uh, there's been more and more of an incorporation of Baptists, Mennonites, Lutherans, Jehovah's, Mormons, so that presently we have a pretty wide spectrum of religious institutions within SNAP. So our, our, our mission is within uh, religious institutions in general. Uh, we don't check IDs at the door, but we do find that our stories of sexual abuse by clergy is pretty similar throughout the, uh, uh, the, di- the different various faiths. What was SNAP for you in those first interactions with the group? Well, in a word, life-saving. Child sex abuse is a lifelong challenge. And uh, I use the analogy of like, you're swimming in the ocean of the effects of that abuse, of depression, low self-esteem, anxiety, sadness, anger, And by coming into an understanding and going through therapy, going through uh, years of support groups with SNAP, having the support of my family has enabled me to get on a path of healing and to make what happened to me as part of my full self um, and not have that as some kind of outside agency uh, impacting my life in, in very negative ways. SNAP's role in serving survivors of clergy abuse and pursuing justice cannot be overstated. However, tensions do exist between the advocacy organization and the church. 
SNAP's tactics to raise awareness and hold the church accountable have been at times controversial. Some survivors have left the organization, unhappy with its antagonistic approach. Under Blaine's leadership, SNAP's kind of crowning achievement was to bring accusations against the Vatican and against Pope John Paul II all the way to the International Criminal Court at The Hague. In 2013, uh, SNAP successfully filed uh, over 800 pages of of documents, uh, much more than that. The the main suit was 800, but they brought 40-some boxes to Rome. Um, And uh, for several years, the International Criminal Court considered whether the Vatican's covering up of this problem or ignoring of this problem constituted crimes against humanity. And uh, ultimately, the Hague dismissed these allegations, said there wasn't sufficient evidence to to bring the Pope to court. But the fact that they were willing to hear this case and that they sat on it for several years, it worked its way through different parts of the Hague, I think really um, spoke to the international potential and as a kind of turning point for the movement. I asked Lennon about SNAP's evolving relationship with the church. Early on, there was interest in engaging the church and making the reforms, and especially around the Dallas Charter, which provided an opening for people to see uh, this is a huge issue, this is not going away. Dave Klossi, who is the executive director of SNAP in 2002, spoke to the British Conference in Dallas. Uh, They had hopes and expectations and set up another meeting, inviting the bishops to attend to develop ways that the church could address the issue, protect children, um, help survivors. and no bishops showed up. Individually, uh, myself and others have engaged with local bishops um, to, in attempts to make reforms. Sometimes, and again, it's on individual basis, uh, bishops have made reforms locally. But in general, as a church as a whole, as an institution, uh, the U.S. Conference and Catholic Bishops have always pushed SNAP away, have always rejected any kind of overture, had no interest in SNAP, no interest in survivors, uh, no interest in our views. So for me, it's sort of like, um, you know, after a while you get the message, you know, there's no change here. Not all survivors groups are like SNAP. Many work productively with the church to address the sexual abuse crisis. But it's hard to dispute how the survivor movement as a whole has spurred the church, not just the bishops, but the entire church, to confront the evil of child sexual abuse and its effects on victims. I think um, early Catholic victims of clergy abuse um, were so outspoken and so kind of uniform in their message that survivors are not alone, that they shifted not only perceptions within the church, but within American society more broadly. I think um, it's, it's an interesting question to ask whether Me Too, for example, um, and the athletic abuse um, allegations that came forward alongside the Hollywood allegations, whether there would have been cultural space, space for that cultural discourse in American society had it not been for Catholic survivors. Their courage in speaking out, in being so public about such a humiliating and often um, shameful, embarrassing, intimate, and, and traumatic moment from their childhood that created a new paradigm, a new model, if you will, um, for survivors, not just of Catholic abuse, not just of clergy abuse, but of all forms of child abuse, especially when it was outside of the family, to begin to come forward and to organize and to be heard on a, on a whole new scale. 
I often think of survivors as prophets, uh, prophetic voices. They were voices for so long, really um, crying out into the wilderness and sharing their testimony, their faith, without being heard. They were ahead of their time. Join us next week for the fifth episode of Crisis. The Dallas Charter has been hailed as a great reform in the U.S. Catholic Church. It sets out policies and procedures meant to prevent abuse and to deal with it effectively. How has it changed the way the church operates? And have these changes really led to a safer church?